Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs, your hobby content alternative. Hobby hustle. We got a good one, everybody. You know why it's a good one? Because we are talking about one of my favorite topics, and that is professional wrestling cards. You all know how big of a fan I am of professional wrestling, and I'm telling you, professional wrestling cards, there's a little bit, maybe not a little bit, maybe a lot of bit, a lot of momentum around the professional wrestling card segment of the sports card hobby, and I got to tell you, I am fired up about it. I have been watching these legends ever since I was three years old, and it is so fun to see some cards gaining momentum. And there is not a better person in the hobby to talk to about wrestling cards than I think the greatest wrestling card collector there is right now, and that is Mr. David Peck. I've been following David across Twitter and Instagram for some time and observing his collecting and his grading and just the volume of rare and scarce cards that he's got. And it was so much fun to talk wrestling and talk wrestling cards with him and understand how long he has been in the game, what his mindset has been. And my biggest takeaway is passion and patience are the two P's that I'll, I'll, I'll uh, leave that conversation with. It just, goes to show you there's a lot of good nuggets. Even if you're not into wrestling cards or don't care about wrestling cards, a lot of good nuggets from how David operates and his mindset with wrestling cards that you can definitely take away with you. If you like what you've been hearing on the Stacking Slabs podcast, hit me with a damn subscribe. Write a review. Tell your friends about Stacking Slabs, brother. All right. Without further ado, let's talk some wrestling cards. We're going to talk some graps. Let's kick it to the conversation. Oh, yeah. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Hobby Hustle. I am really excited to talk to you and bring on today's guest. I have been talking a lot about wrestling cards over the last six months. You all know I'm a pro wrestling degenerate. I have wrestling figures all around me. I've got wrestling titles. And I've got plenty of wrestling cards. Not as much as today's guest. Today's guest is David Peck. I think from my observation, he has one of the finest slabbed vintage wrestling card collections known to mankind. Um, I know he was featured in uh, uh, SMR a couple times talking about his Hogan collection. Um, he's got a lot of cool stuff, so I'm excited to dig in. But without further ado, David, how are you? Hey, man, thanks for having me on. I'm doing great and uh, looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. So I, I got to, I, I guess, start from the top, uh, talking with another wrestling fan. I, I just like love to get just maybe the context and background. We all have these stories about how wrestling, how we got hooked on wrestling. Usually it comes from an early age, but I'd love to hear that story from your end, how, what's, what sucked you into wrestling? Well, I'm, I'm from Orlando, Florida and, um, wrestling in Florida in the seventies, uh, was huge. And, uh, I was born in 79. And so my, my parents are, um, 67. So, you know, my dad was still pretty young. And so anyway, uh, championship wrestling from Florida was a hot deal. And so we started, uh, watching that in diapers. You know, and doing a lot of, um, you know, I've done a number of these shows and, you know, you can sort of get asked similar questions and I had to sort of trace it back. And I would say 1984 is when I sort of remember um, wrestling. Uh, I, I watch a lot of YouTube and, you know, so I, on a rainy Saturday here in Orlando, I'll have YouTube on and sit there, have some drinks, eat some sunflower seeds and you know, and, and have a good time. And so I'll watch some of those championship wrestling from Florida episodes and I'll say, okay, I remember this, you know, 85, you know, Hogan took the world by storm. And so, you know, I was a 
Hulkamaniac. And uh, I had, uh, you know, we didn't, you know, it came from modest means. So I didn't get all the, I've you know, got the little LJN figures over here. These are adult purchased ones, but, um, you know, everybody had a Hogan figure. Uh, I had, uh, I, you know, like my folders for school had Hulk Hogan and stuff. And so, you know, I think that it just basically, you know, in the eighties, it's easy to forget. I mean, you know, most of us didn't have cable. So if you didn't have cable, um, entertainment on TV was, you know, relegated generally to wrestling and a few other things. So it, uh, it started then. So, so we'll, we'll get into Hogan for sure, but maybe we talk about the pre Hogan and, you know, just describing to the listeners, a lot of people wrestling starts with, you know, WWF and that's what people remember. But, you know, prior to that and during the kind of the launch of, uh, WWF and Vince McMahon taking over the, there was competition and there was competition. It was the territories and, you know, there were guys that were dedicated to specific territory. So in the, in the Florida area, were there specific guys at the time that were like the big draws, um, in that, in, in your neck of the woods? Yeah. So Kevin Sullivan, um, you know, the Florida territory had morphed into, um, more of a heel draw territory. Um, and so Kevin Sullivan, the Prince of Darkness, was the top guy. And I tell you, um, in recent years, I've got to do, you know, I've got a buddy of mine, this guy, Greg Weiss, and he uh, he's in a very successful attorney and, you know, he's got a tremendous card collection. But anyway, for fun, he's a wrestling vendor. And so I uh, got to do, um, you know, when WrestleMania 33 came through Orlando, you know, we did, I think it was WrestleCon. And so Greg had brought some guys in. And so anyway, we were doing this happy hour. And what happens is, you know, I can laugh. I'll call myself a mark, whatever. <laughs> you know, when 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 the wrestlers know that there's a guy that's got a credit card that's buying drinks, <laughs> um, you know, everybody's your best friend. And so, you know, all of a sudden, I was, we were sitting there with uh, Tully Blanchard, which is our guy. Um, and so next thing you know, he's like, oh, you know, Dave here's you know, buying drinks. So, you know, everybody's sort of zooming in and I, it was so fun. Uh, my twin, you know, so we, we had, um, brought, you know, some alcohol with us to kind of, uh, pass the time, at, you know, after the, the event and Kevin Sullivan was there. And I mean, my twin bill was like, he was so drunk and I, he must've said the Prince of darkness like 50 <laughs> times, you know, he's like, Oh my God, it's the Prince of Darkness. Like he couldn't believe it, you know. And <laughs> Sullivan was cool. He pounded some Heinekens, and you know he enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, Kevin Sullivan was the guy that basically made the territory go. But what was interesting is we weren't really allowed to watch him. So what would happen is uh, we'd come home from church, and um, at the time he had sort of this satanic character. I mean, he likes to say that it wasn't, but I mean it's kind of hard to argue that. And so the church groups all over the state were like lobbying to get him off TV. And so anyway, we'd get home. And as soon as he was on, my mom was like, we got to turn it off. And so we would uh, sit there and say, okay, two minutes later, turn the TV on. He's still on. Got to turn it off. Five minutes later, you know, he'd finally be off. So um, Sullivan was the guy. And then, you know, Lex Luger, you know, I know that he's sort of easy to hate on. But, you know, when Lex came into wrestling in 85, um, I watched the, the videos now and you can see how green he is in the ring. And, you know, he certainly wasn't a good, what they call worker, but Lex had a look that nobody really had. I mean, this guy, uh, was so jacked and, um, in the Florida territory and, and, and all the territories, a lot of the guys had pot bellies and, you know, just weren't like, like the vision of like a bodybuilder, you know, so Lex, I mean, he, he took the uh, Florida territory by storm. And, you know, then of course, you know, Hogan took over. So it was just that sort of look, you know, that over, you know, super muscular body, you know, became the deal. Yeah. The, uh, and for anyone, uh, so when I, when you say Kevin Sullivan, I immediately think of the taskmaster character. Um, and then Lex Luger is an interesting one just because, you know, I feel like, he wasn't the best worker. However, it's always seemed like he was dealt a hand 
that he wasn't quite ready for, whether it was, you know, in WCW trying to push him to the top, top of the card, or then when Hogan left WWF trying to make him the top guy and it just never really worked out for him. But I, I think, you know, he was a draw and obviously he played a big role in, you know, Monday night nitros birth. And so I think Lex is one of those guys who maybe not necessarily get a, gets the, the best, fair shake but a hell of a look you know nobody had a better body in 85 86 um i mean you could argue like take a guy like rick rude uh rude um you know i think i mean everybody's sort of aware that wrestlers were heavily on steroids um you know rude gained size by like 88 but in 85 86 you know he had a tremendous physique and he was cut but he didn't have quite the size Lex had, I mean, Lex was legitimately 270 pounds shredded, which, you know, I mean, obviously you can see what's happened to him now. He, you know, he's, he's on the other side of, you know, extensive steroid use, but he had a look that was just uh, unbelievable. And, um, you know, I think the other thing is, is that uh, it's so easy now to pick on guys, but remember, I mean, wrestling, you know, was not uh, five-star matches. You know, it's not, I mean, now there's 13 false finishes in a match. You know, back then it was like, you had a finisher. You know, if he, if he got you in the, uh, the, the torture rack, I mean, it was game over, you know? And I think the other thing that's hurt Lex is, and I think we're all sort of guilty of this is, you know, Miss Elizabeth died on his hand. Mm -hmm. And I, so I think what's happened is, is that a lot of us have sort of, um, for lack of a better term, hold him accountable. And, uh, and it's hurt, you know, his standing in, in the wrestling world. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. And we're going to get into cards, but I just want to talk about that. The, the product back then to the product now in terms of like the way the matches are booked, the false finishes, it couldn't look any more different. I do the same thing. Like I'll hit YouTube and I'll go watch the old territory days, watch bruiser Brody, watch all these old guys and watch these matches and the psychology behind it. And I'm a fan of it. But, and then this past weekend I was watching, uh, I was behind and I wanted to watch the new, new Japan's wrestle kingdom. And it's just completely different. And I like them both. And I think, one of the arguments just with wrestling fans, it just seems like everyone wants to create this division. And it seems like even today with like WWE and AEW, like my, my take is like, it's a wrestling community and you can pick and choose the different flavors you like, but at the end of the day, it's wrestling and like, we should all just enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I enjoy older wrestling. Uh, I do think that it had a more real factor, you know, like, I'm sorry, but if, if I suplex you 40 times, you know, at some point you should be out. Um, and so I'm not as big a fan of so many high impact moves that get kicked out of. Um, but that, you know, what I've learned in life is, is that you just have to sort of go with the flow and, you know, if this is how current wrestling is, that's how it is, you know, and the idea that anybody should root against AEW or root against WWE. I don't get that because think about the performers. If you have stronger organizations, those guys are, or I shouldn't say guys, those, those people, because there's obviously a tremendous women's movement. They're better off. You know, if you don't have competition, like when AEW first came on, I said, this is fantastic because guess what's going to happen. You got Tony Khan, the Khan family's money. And if they start to sniff out, any level of success, they're going to put more money behind this. So what's that going to do? Like take a guy like Randy Orton, you know, he's sort of teased a few times on Twitter, you know, um, let's say WWE is paying him 2 million, picking a number. Okay. And it, you know, maybe that's right. I, I think it's higher, but let's say it's 2 million. Well, Tony Khan might come along and say, I'll pay you 4 million, just like what happened when Ted Turner came in. So for the, for the wrestlers themselves, you need more than one organization. You know, think about a guy like um, Ryback. You know, I saw something earlier today. Like Ryback is, you know, he's Ryback. 
but but he still has a place. Like if, if there's only one place and, and he runs his mouth about WWE, well, there's no chance to be employed. But guess what? Maybe he has a shot in New Japan. I don't know if they'd want him, but you know what I'm saying. Or AEW. So you need competition. And for us fans, competition's good because you can turn on. Um, I think one of the things that made the 80s so great is there was like major action all around the country. I mean, you could turn on, if you had cable back then, there was a lot of different choices. Now, if you were a local person like us, you know, we had championship wrestling from Florida and then NBC picked up WWF. So I think that, I think the wrestling world right now is very healthy. And I think this action, and, and I'm very happy that AEW is doing well because it's good for everybody. I agree with you. And it's, it's the, uh, uh, you can see just impacts relevant now um, in a bunch of these other promotions that weren't, and it's just competition. You, the more competition you have, it'll push people to uh, create better product. It'll, it'll push the wrestlers to have better matches. So I think that's good. Let's get into cards. Cause I could stay here. I can already tell and talk to you about wrestling all night. Um, when, when did you get, when did you start to get really serious about uh, collecting wrestling cards? Well, it's 2009. And so what had happened, and it's funny, um, I had forgotten, you know, I thought that Brock had not come into the UFC, but in reality, it was post, it was right around UFC 100. And so I started searching for Brock cards in general, right? And uh, I stumbled across the 82 All-Stars because, you know, um, I'll be 42 in April. And so I did buy a couple of packs in 85 of the tops WWF. So I said, you know, let me go see what a, what a Hogan 85 tops goes for. And, uh, and I found the 82 all-stars. And so once I got them in hand, um, I just was like, these are going to be huge. You know, th this is, this is, this is really good stuff. And, and I think that, uh, what's happened is the market has transformed you know, to a level that's, you know, just wildly different. I mean, I was buying um, sets like I, I, you know, when I was sort of thinking about coming on the show, I was like, you know, what are we going to talk about? And I, it dawned on me. I mean, I remember buying them, you know, for 150, 175 bucks. You know, I was getting ready to go downtown and drop 300 on bottles. And I'm like, dude, just buy another one of these sets. It's 175 bucks. You're going to piss out more tomorrow or tonight then then these sets you know and and i just um as soon as i saw them and saw the breadth of wrestlers and uh, i just thought they had you know great potential and so in 2010 you know i went full on and started researching um as many sets as i could and the goal then was just to sort of have like one of like all the sets from the 80s but i i knew that the wrestling all-stars had great potential and uh, when they started um grading you know became a much bigger element i decided i wanted to have you know the best collection and um you know i tell you um this past year you know covid really sent everybody for a loop but i'm really proud of the fact i mean my my wrestling all-star sets made it into the psa hall of fame and you know it's the first wrestling card set to make the hall of fame i um 10 years on top which was, uh, you know, people have no idea how much time I've spent on this. You know, I, I used to, you know, I'm in finance. And so everybody was like wrestling cards, like what, what's wrong with you? You know, and I used to leave work dinners. I mean, legitimately, I, I had times when people want to take me out to lunch. I'm like, we can't go. I've got auctions on eBay. Ending. You know, we, we, I, I have to win these cards. And so there's been a, um, a lot of time an effort and uh, I've been full force for over 10 years. Let's uh, um, talk a little bit about the 82 wrestling all-star set. I think most people would say in terms of wrestling cards, that is the set of all sets. And I I'll tell you, David, I didn't really realize it until I got my hands on a set myself uh, through a deal I made. And when those cards came to me in really good condition, and I had the opportunity to hold them in hand and then not only hold them and look at the images on front, 
but read read the cards on the back and you're reading these stories of these legends almost before they're legends. And I think there's something that is so captivating about this set of cards. I'd love to hear just like your perspective. Obviously there's a passion there. You're leaving dinners to get auctions closed. Like what does this set to mean to you and why do you think it's so important? Well, I think the number one reason it's so great is it's before the wrestling explosion. You know, so when you read the backs, um, they might reference that uh, whomever the wrestler is has won this title and that title and worked in this area and that area. Um, I think the other thing is, is that so I spent a lot of time tracking down the, the photographs. Um, the wrestling news is who put out the cards, Right. And so it was mail order only. And. What they did is they took the photographs that they were using in their magazine and then just cropped them and made trading cards, right? So it's a really neat story. Um, Vince McMahon Sr. is uh, credited, uh, you know, so I reached out many years ago to Norman Keitzer, who had made the cards. And he said that Vince, it was Vince McMahon Sr.'s idea. Now, George Napolitano, is you know probably the most famous wrestling photographer and when you talk to him you know he said look i took most of the photos not all he took a lot and you know it was his idea to vince and then of course vince you know said let's do this so that said i mean when you look at the let's take the uh 82a the farthest back photograph is from 72 the wahoo mcdaniel is from one of their 72 magazines a lot of times people see the Bruiser, Bruiser Brody card and they think, gosh, this doesn't look like Brody. That picture is from 73 when he broke into business with Stan Hansen. Um, the Hogan is from 1979, you know, and so it's to me, it just it captivates old wrestling. And, you know, nobody was thinking in 1982 uh, when you when they ordered these sets, that these were going to be like world class collectibles, right? You know, the best set I ever bought was um, in 2010. This was my first time getting into graded cards. So there was a gentleman from Minnesota, and um, the Wrestling News was based out of Minnesota. So he had a friend that was there, and you know, the AWA was the local territory, and this guy said, hey, I want you to get some of these wrestling sets. So he got some of the sets and he would take them to card shows and people just made fun of them. You know, they said, this is garbage. I, I can't even, you know, it's embarrassing. So he put them away for like 27 years. And so he started selling some on eBay. And I guess it would have been, well, late March. So he lists the set for uh, $3.99 sealed set. And I, I mean, it was on eBay for like 30 minutes. I grab it and, you know, so it's 410 with shipping. I'll never forget. So it comes to the house. And I've, at this point, I think I already had like seven Hogan's, you know, I had been buying a bunch and said to my wife, I was like, I'm going to try to keep this one sealed. And as the afternoon wore on, I just kept looking at it and I was like, I can't do it. So I opened them up and I was like, wow, because I think one of the things people forget is these cards are super condition sensitive, it's, it, whether it's centering, you know, if you have a purple border, I mean, any white, like just the flake of white is going to show. And so I rip them open and they were really, really nice. I mean, this guy, Jerome was his name. And he said, look, this is the nicest set I had. I, I sort of saved the best for last. He had been selling them for like 200 uh, sealed with maybe a little damage. And this one was double. And um, I said, you know what? I'm going to send these off to PSA. And uh, so it was my first submission and nailed four PSA 10s. At this stage, there's only 67. So, and actually one of the 10s uh, I got the next submission was a guy named Steve O. I didn't really think he sort of was the top like star. So I sent him in next. So five of the 67 10s came from that pack and uh, it was awesome. And so, you know, once I sent them in, uh, you know, I, I just, I would totally hope so. Yeah, so incredible backstory on those cards. And I think 
that gives me further context, especially on the photography that I, in the timing of that, that I guess I never realized what, and if anyone's been following along with this set of cards, especially on the graded side, the, the growth of um, what's happened with these cards over the last, I don't know, David, what would you say? Is it the last year this boom has really taken off? What would you, what's the time frame? Well, they started percolating um, last year. I mean, well, let me, let me take a step back. In 2010, I bought a Ric Flair PSA 10 and I paid $12.25. And <laughs> at the time, that was a stupid price. You know, like basically what happened is I had started actively commenting on the uh, Collector's Universe, that's the PSA message board. And I said I was bidding on this card and there was a guy um, that, that decided to shill me, not to help the seller, just to try to hang me out to dry. And uh, anyway, so I, I won the auction for twelve twenty-five. Uh, you know, if he hadn't bid, it would have been more like seven hundred. But anyway, so that was the first like shot across the bow where it was like, wait a second, these things, you know, you know, somebody out there is paying, willing to pay. And then the Hogan card, you know, shot up quickly, right? And so, you know, they were, they were gone for decent prices for a while. And, and, but, but, and I mean, I'll tell you, like the most I've ever paid for an all-star was my Carrie Von Eric 10. I won that a couple of years ago for a little over 3,000, 3,050 to be exact. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like they were cheap, but what's happened in the last two years is, you know, once Gary V started you know, putting these on his Instagram or well, his Twitter, actually, um, they just started getting a little more going. And, you know, the last nine months of the card hobby, you know, has caught everybody by storm. I don't think anybody, myself included, could have predicted it. I mean, I've been a, a massive benefactor. You know, I, I, I'm active on social media. I mean, people see the stuff I post, you know, and I've got immensely more cards that, have, you know, I've never been shown. But or well, at least on, you know, the, the platforms, um, you know, like I got Mike Tyson. That was one of my other ones that I'm sort of credited for bringing to the forefront. And, you know, that card is up huge, you know? So I think basically what happened was, is that um, the card market as a whole went nuts. And you, you can't tell me that Hulk Hogan's card should be cheap. You can't tell me that Andre the Giant should be cheap. I mean, these are pop culture icons. They're some of the biggest stars in my lifetime. You know, we obviously could sit, talk wrestling forever, but you, you don't have to talk to a wrestling fan for them to know who Hulk Hogan is, you know? And so I think we're, what we've seen happen is, I feel like a broken record because I say this all the time. I think you have two types of wrestling cards. You've got wrestling cards and you have pop culture wrestling cards. So, so the mega stars really cross over. And so, so does the average baseball card collector want Dick Murdoch's wrestling all-stars? No, they do not. But could they take a Hogan or would they settle for an 85 tops? Yes, they would. You know, so we're in a, um, a tremendous up move for wrestling. It, I have to say it's, it's been super exciting because I really, um, my goal Early on, you know, people used to make fun of me. They said the wrestling's garbage. And I just wanted the stuff to be respected. You know, it, it was like, it should be respected. You know, professional wrestling was a huge deal, still is a huge deal globally. And, you know, if you think about the 80s, I mean, what, like Hulk Hogan was as big a star in the 80s as Michael Jordan. I mean, I know that sounds sacrilegious to some, but it's reality. No, you're preaching to the choir on, on that one. Um, so what, what does, okay. So we talked about 82, maybe give some color commentary on the, cause just cause I want to, I think it deserves the time and the respect, give some color commentary on the 83 set. And, uh, I know it, it doesn't really get mentioned as in the same breath as 82 often. And there's, but, but talk about the 83 set and, and what you think is important in that one and what you like. Well, I'll tell you what, um, that set for actually a while, the graded cards were selling for the most because I think a lot of times people forget that, you know, the PSA registry, you know, there's always that saying, 
PSA registry is a powerful drug, right? And so what happened um, in 2011, I did an article in the SMR, right? And it didn't come out till 2012. But an avid wrestling fan, Joey Graben from Atlanta, he saw the article and decided that that he wanted to you know participate. And um, wrestling cards prices were still generally affordable back then. And so he decided he was going to try to take me out in the '83 set. And you know I've got great respect uh, for Joey, so you know we're on good terms. So what happened when you know when you have low population totals, it doesn't take many buyers for the prices to go up. And so the uh you saw uh PSA 10s from that set outselling the other two sets for a while because um you know an 82A I'm miles ahead of everybody 82B um pretty far ahead 83 all stars uh Graven or he goes by broken soul 6900 in the registry he's one card behind me okay so so I mean at any given time he could take me over as the number one set. And so that drives prices, right? So um, that set's got some good stuff in it. I'd say that Gino Hernandez, you know, is obviously, um, most of us didn't even know who he was until YouTube, right? Because he died in 86. When I, I'll tell you a great story about that set. First time I ripped one open, I saw Tiger Mask and I thought, well, this guy looks really goofy. You know, what's the story with this guy? Well, you go to YouTube, Tiger Mask, I would argue, is probably the greatest in-ring performer of all time. Um, yep. I think that, uh, you know, today there's a lot of talented people. But you watch his match with Dynamite Kid from, uh -huh. I want to say, 82. I mean, I, there's nothing like it. And then they, then they wrestled in the Garden. And uh, you know, even the Garden fans that, you know, were used to slower paced matches and you know just sort of bigger guys they were standing on their feet you know so uh tiger mask is in there um hacksaw uh duggan you know he was uh he came out of the mid-south um and he was part of the rat pack with uh, uh ted dibiase and matt Bourne. the matt Bourne card which is the last card in the set is easily one of the toughest high-grade trading cards that exist so you know it's a neat set uh, superstar Billy Graham, who, yeah, and actually, you know, I'm kind of jumping around, but I think a lot of people don't realize 82A and 82B are not one through 36 in the pack. 83 is, right? And so, anyway, so you've got, uh, you know, superstar Graham on the front and you've got Matt Bourne on the back. And so the superstar Graham card is, I think, would be immensely more popular if it wasn't his karate gimmick but it's still a really tough card i mean it's on the top of the cellophane so great set just doesn't have quite the star power that the others do and really what they were doing it was like a b and c team you know so if you look at the 82a even though maybe some of the guys were a little past their prime they were NWA champions. I mean, Dory Funk in 82 may have not been the same Dory Funk in 72, but he was still a three-time NWA champion. So you have 82A, but A roster, B roster, C roster. So great set. Um, and now they're really starting to get pricey. And the other thing that happened is there was a lot more of those sealed sets that existed. In 83, if you watch older WWF, activity so norman keitzer made the programs for all the major territories awa um, some of the biggest nwa territories wwf well in 83 vince took away his media rights and there's a victory magazine which there's a, a famous copy with superfly on the first cover you'll see some of the house shows that their victory magazine is uh like there's a banner so Norman Keitzer's business fell off a cliff in 83. So the 83 set did not sell well because all of a sudden he wasn't getting the programs for the WWF, you know? So there's a, there's a neat backstory to it. And now we're at a point where they don't show up much. So we're, it's slim pickings. There has not been a new 
PSA 10 hit from that set in probably a year. Wow. Um, just for anyone listening, some things to comment on. Um, I would say if you want to see kind of the, if you enjoy modern wrestling and the fast pace and uh, the high spots, I would definitely recommend everyone go out and check out those dynamite kid and tiger mask matches. Those are, those are way ahead of their time. I um, mean, I think are some of the best matches of all time. And then uh, David referenced Matt Bourne, um, which is a card I've been looking for. Matt Bourne played the doink gimmick um, for anyone who, watch WWF of all for all time. And that character just in it itself is one of, for me, one of the most fascinating stories and characters I think of all time. I don't know what it was, if it was just me as a kid being infatuated by him, but uh, th that's just something I wanted to call out for anyone who might not know. Well, I think the other thing is Matt Bourne was a badass. I mean, he was a legitimate, you know, I think that in the eighties wrestling, had a lot of tough guys, you know, and I don't want to say that Drew McIntyre is not tough. I don't know, but I can tell you this right now in the eighties, what happened is when these guys would go out, you know, like here in Florida, Eddie Graham would pay these guys to get in bar fights and beat people up. If you, if you lost a bar fight, you didn't have a job because the whole thing was, is that kayfabe was so big back then. And it was like, Hey, wrestling's fake. Well, how fake is this when I just whooped your ass? Yeah, no, no doubt. You hear those stories all the time. Um, uh, so when when you're, I guess what your what's your process today? Like, are you still trying to unearth some of these opportunities like you did ten years ago with wrestling all stars? And if so, like, how, what? You don't necessarily need to share like what the cards would be, but like, what's your process when you're trying to evaluate some of these wrestling card sets that you think might pop? Well, I tell you. Um, I just always look for the early cards of the stars, right? And so uh, I don't, I'll give you an example, like 2002 WWE Royal Rumble has been a set I've been focused on for quite some time. I, I don't care to get into the rookie card debate in wrestling cards. I think it's completely stupid. I mean, to me, the idea that anybody is going to argue about like what the rookie card is and well, the, you know, that's a regional issue. You can't call it a rookie card. Right. Well, whatever, dude, I let the market decide. And so if you really want to look at like a quote unquote, true rookie card, the 2002 WWE Royal Rumble Fleer set has, uh, you know, Cena, Orton, Batista and Brock Lesnar. It's also got, uh, Stacey Keebler, um, uh, I don't know if it's Trish's first card, so I don't think it is. But but you know, I mean, you're talking about, and it's actually it's not Stacy's because she's got some uh, like cheerleader card for whenever she was with the Ravens. But um, that said, I saw these a long time ago, and you know, Brock Lesnar is my favorite, and uh, I'll you know, I'll never forget 2002 when he debuted on SmackDown, and he walked out. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> this guy, you know, because I've been watching wrestling at that time, you know, for a long time. I mean, we talked earlier about Lex. I mean, yeah, he was jacked. But I mean, Brock in 2002 is probably the most jacked wrestler of all time. I mean, he legitimately was like 318 pounds, you know, with like under 10% body fat. I mean, it was just stupid, right? So had to get a Brock rookie, if you will, first card. And so anyway, I would say that, you know, the Casina has just exploded recently. And, you know, those are super tough. Like I've ripped six or seven boxes. My early boxes, I was, you know, fortunate. I hit some tens. I haven't hit a 10 in four boxes. Um, and they stick together. The, the surface bubbles. Any of that black shows white. You've got print defects. I had I had this beautiful Brock. I just pulled. It's miscut on the back. Um, you know, just half of the cards, not him or whatever. So what I try to do is just is locate the early star cards, right? And so I don't really have a strategy. I mean, my strategy was 
just trying to buy anything I thought was good. You know, I think um, I made a mistake and fortunately it still worked out. Like the 1997 WWF Cardinal cards, I was the first to get those PSA graded. And I was shooting for a Rocky Maivia 10. Well, got three nines. I sold two of the nines for 50 bucks a piece. You know, those are like well north of $1,000 now. Now, I never sell. I always keep a copy for my collection. And uh, fortunately, I had some other ones. I sent those in and I did land a, a Rock 10, which was pretty cool. Well, I'm not going to sit here and talk bad about that set. I mean, but it's caught me by surprise. It's gone up more than I would have ever anticipated. So I don't, I don't take a value judgment. You know, I buy the stuff. I let the market decide. You know, if you think that the 97 Rocky Maivia is the card, well, far be it for me to disagree. You know, I, I, I do think that nothing compares to the All-Stars. I think that, you know, that's sort of a, a futile argument. But I buy, I, I cast my net really far and I'm a collector. You know, I think that's the other thing. You know, I, I read your, your post a lot. I mean, I see them every day. And I think the, the number one thing people can do is buy stuff you like, because if you get stuck with it, I mean, I'm not like a flipper, but, but I don't have a problem owning something I like. If it goes up in value, that's great. If it goes down, it stinks, but I still own it. And I think the bigger issue is there's so much hot money in the market right now for, you know, all trading cards. And it's a lot easier to hold something, you know, like I went through, you know, so I've got 3182 all-stars of Hogan. Right. I mean, I've got a bunch. And when he had the unfortunate comments that came out, his card dropped in half like overnight. Right. I didn't need to sell. I didn't sell any of them. I didn't care. I mean, it was because like I like I just I love this Hulk Hogan card. I think it's a great card. I mean, I've added, you know, some obviously sense, but I was OK with that, you know. And so I just think at the core that if you focus on stuff you like then you're okay. And in, in wrestling cards, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you're seeing action in so many different areas. You know, like probably one of the cards I'd like to own that I say is out of my reach, like I'm just not really willing to pay this, the 1993 Chris Jericho for Mexico. I mean, that is a ridiculously rare card. Like I've only seen a few of them in 10 plus years, right? So I'm not willing to pay a thousand for a raw copy, but somebody else is, Hey, be my guest. But guess what? You know, when you look at baseball and you look at basketball, when you think about the rarity of some of this stuff, it's off the charts. And so the supply demand equation for wrestling is very, very tilted to low supply. So if you get, you know, my, um, my degree is in economics, right? So I used my, economics background to apply it to, to trading cards. And that's always been sort of my, you know, focus. Well, if I've seen four of these cards in 10 years, now bear in mind, I'm not saying there's only four. I'm just saying I've only seen four. If you get four new people that want to own that card, it's going ballistic in price, right? So that's what's happened is just that the production levels of wrestling cards is so low relative to the other trading cards that this wave of new buyers has swamped supply and the price have gone up. So, so much good stuff there uh, that I want to jump on. Um, I think uh, just the fact that low supply with wrestling cards is a, a, a great call out. Um, I think the, uh, maybe the other thing too, to touch on, I'd love to get your perspective here. When I started jumping into wrestling cards it was more, my mentality was like i'm a big wrestling fan i'm gonna go out and buy what i what i what i'm passionate about and what i like like and my my process wasn't i'm gonna go buy these cards because i'm trying to make a bunch of money off of them it's it doesn't it i mean it doesn't really work like that in wrestling cards like it does in the basketball card market so like one thing i would caution people listening who might be getting excited about hearing low supply and you, you, first and foremost, you got to like wrestling. You got to understand. You got to want to know, like explore and do do your due diligence. And I think that's really important. 
Um, but, and I, and I also think it's important is for people to know that it, it's it, that the wrestling card market doesn't really operate like all of the others. And I love what you talk about, like the rookie card uh, perspective. I've gotten into so many conversations and debates about this and it's like, uh, you're right. Just like, let the market tell you what it is. I think that's a good, a good perspective, but I'd love to ask you, like one of the observations I've made is just the opportunity with grading. And if you look at, you know, PSA and you unearth some sets, like there is a low supply of P- some of these wrestling cards in PSA eights, nines, or tens. And so one of the, one of my big observations is go out and try to find clean, good copies of cards that I really like and go get them graded because there's just not a whole, a lot out there. And if I w- were to sell them, um, I just, I sent a, uh, I'll give you some context. I just sent like a 289 card lot to PSA. I probably should have broken it up, but I just sent it all. And there's a lot of doubles of stuff, but I was going to do the same thing. It was like, I'm going to take one copy for myself and sell some of the others to recoup the grading fees and then make a little money. Um, but I think just my observations, what was is that, man, you look at the pop reports, I'm sitting on a, like a few copies of these and I, I hit on these, then I'm, I could sell these and make some money. So maybe talk a little bit about the opportunity with like raw cards and what you're seeing with grading and PSA and just the scarcity there. Well, I, I knew early on that wrestling cards were going to be tough. And so I'll give you an example. One of the popular sets that I've gotten heavy into for many years is the Carnation Major League Wrestling cards, right? These came two to a pack in hot cocoa mix. And so they bounced around in the box. I mean, if you think about it, if they were they were put on a shelf, they were thrown on the uh, conveyor belt, they were in somebody's, you know, uh, bag. I mean, you're talking about some serious damage along the way, right? Like it's not a good transportation for staying in nice condition. Well, here we are 10 years later and the carnation sets have three gym men tents. Okay. Now literally three. Now there's only six cards in the set, but I mean, you're talking about three gym men tents. So, um, you see a lot of this across the board. I mean, most people did not view wrestling cards as anything of value. So the handling process, like, I mean, take somebody like me, in 1985, you know, I wasn't dialed in on centering. I didn't know about print dots. But you got a Roger Clemens or you got a Kirby Puckett or Dwight Gooden. That was going in a top loader or, or uh, a penny sleeve or in, in pages, right? So, I mean, there was every attempt to keep them in nice condition. So wrestling cards were never kept in nice condition. Um, I think the... Uh, Reality of it is, is that myself and, you know, I'm, I'm buddies with some of the other active wrestling card guys like Rob England. You know, I always mention him on these interviews. Rob has gotten more cards graded for the first time than anybody. Right. Well, think about that for a second. So you all of a sudden get a card graded and there's none graded. Well, you put that on eBay and nobody's ever seen one. It's like, how do you, how do you create comps? Like there's no, there's no real pricing data, right? So it gives you better leverage as a seller because, you know, like 86 Fleer Michael Jordan is easily the most liquid trading card on the planet, right? And I mean, it's unbelievable what's happened to the card. I mean, so impressive. Well, you can get on eBay at any given time and find an up. Uh, a five, a six, a seven, an eight, a nine. It's just an issue of are you willing to pay the price that the seller is asking? Well, the wrestling cards, that's not the case, you know? And so um, I think that, you know, in 2010, I, you know, I saw that grading had a chance. I mean, basically, I tell people what I patterned my collection around was there's a guy that is real heavy into, the 1959 Fleer Three Stooges and um, very popular set. And so I thought, you know, 
if people are willing to collect graded cards of the Three Stooges, they'll collect Hulk Hogan. They'll collect Ric Flair, right? So what's happened now we're 10 years later. And I mean, every single, like, and I got to admit, I'm shocked. Like 1990 classic uh, wrestling cards, like Macho Man and Ultimate Warrior. I mean, I'm seeing PSA 10 sometimes go for 100 bucks or more. Like Warrior. Crazy. Bucks, yeah. It's unbelievable. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, not of those sales. I'm a little more skeptical in terms of the staying power of some of those in the sense that, you know, PSA has a backlog of cards right now, right? So people see high prices. They say, hey, let me go check my collection. I've got those. Let me send them in, right? So there's a lot of wrestling cards that the pops are going to stay low regardless, right? So um, I'll give you a better example. The um, Opichi Series 2 Macho Man has become quite popular. Now, unfortunately, the grading companies label that as 1985. There's an 85 copyright on the back. You look at the set, it's based around WrestleMania 2, which was in April of 86. So it's not 85. But take the Savage. I mean, I have, um, I went out and bought 37 sets, uh, at, you know, many years ago trying to find nice ones. And actually the 10, I, I, I subbed the first 10. It did not come from any of those. It came from a $2, 24 card lot that I bought that came in a, a team bag, which that was really cool. But the Macho Man, I mean, some of those are legitimately zero 100 centering. Like, I mean, they don't, no border, right? So you don't submit those. So, I mean, the condition sensitivity of some of this stuff is, is so high that now that they're considered cool, right? That, I mean, the price can go berserk. I mean, I, I've been, um, you know, I was obviously early in the game. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy about all this stuff, but I mean, you get a Macho Man 10, it's been a pop four for years. You know, that's a four figure car, right? And so you could buy a, a set on eBay for, you know, 80 bucks or something like that. And, you know, if you fortunately get a beautifully centered copy with nice corners, I mean, you might have a thousand dollar card in your hand. So, you know, I get, I think what's happened in wrestling is there's a lot of the old school wrestling collectors. It pisses them off about the grading because they think their card is as good as your card. And, you know, I just think grading in general is a phenomenon that created short prints. You know, the trading card companies today, they've on purpose make five of one or 10 of one or 200 of one. Well, the market creates five of one, you know? And so without card grading, you know, the card market would suck right now. I mean, it, it literally card grading is what's taking this thing up. I mean, I, um, you know, I think we're all want our cards at PSA to log faster and grade faster and return obviously faster. Well, I talked earlier about my first submission. I got those cards. They graded in four days. It was a collector's club, 15 card special. It was supposed to be five days. They were done four. Um, as each year's passed, the wait time's gotten longer, right? What's happened? The prices have gone up. Now, in, in 2010, PSA was grading about 1.6 million cards. And back then, everybody said, uh, oh, that they've got nowhere to go. They've already graded all these 80s baseball cards. I mean, the Griffey Pop Report was already for 89 upper deck at like 60,000 cards or whatever it was, right? Well, they just each year inched up a couple hundred thousand. Last year, Joe Orlando put out a tweet in the in the in the heat of you know the sort of boom. They were getting two hundred fifty thousand cards a week. That's over thirteen million cards. Okay, so you went from one point six million to over thirteen million. Now it may slow down. I mean, that's you know whatever. But when you have that radical change in the demand profile for grading cards well that says a lot so you know we we i know everybody wants to say it's a bubble um maybe it is a bubble you know but bubbles don't burst overnight we've got the, the trading card movement right now i personally think is a few years away from 
a bubble bursting. I mean, I, I think you've got, I mean, you just said you had 200, almost 90 cards at PSA. Well, that's not cheap. I mean, you've got uh, $3,000 of grading fees. You know, there's a lot of money coming in in every direction. Unbelievable perspective. Uh, I love that. So good. Um, maybe we can close with this, David. What, what, in your opinion, is the most important wrestling card of all time and why? Well, it's, it's, it's without a doubt the 82 uh, Wrestling All-Stars Hulk Hogan. Um, I think that, uh, so when I bought my first set in August of 2009, I didn't know who was in it. Basically what happened is uh, the, the seller had an 82A and an 82B. He had two graded cards, Hulk Hogan PSA 9 and the Jerry Lawler PSA 9. And then on the 82B, uh, Iron Sheik BGS 9.5 and uh, Sergeant Slaughter BGS 9 and Tito Santana BGS 9. So the Hogan is the Mickey Mantle of wrestling cards. I mean, there's, you know, it's legitimately Hulk before he took the world by storm. Um, it's the incredible Hulk Hogan from 1979. Um, there's no PSA 10s. There's I want to say seven BGS nine fives. None of those have a chance to cross the PSA. Uh, PSA grades these so much tougher than BGS. There, if, if you know, I challenge you to look at some of the graded examples, and what you'll see is PSA wants a lot of lower border. Um, BGS will allow for a small lower border and a much larger top. Uh, PSA doesn't, right? So you'll see like a a lot of PSA 90Cs where it has like virtually no lower border. So I think the Hogan is just sort of like, he's the Babe Ruth of wrestling. And I get it that, you know, like Ric Flair, for example, like some like more, um, you know, Dusty Rhodes is great. Andre the Giant is great. But Hulk Hogan transformed wrestling. And so when you have a card that, basically was before he was big time and you know it's super condition sensitive i think it's big and you know hogan's in like so he has two cards from japan from 1981 and so those are hotly collected i mean they're incredibly low supply like the the 1991 poppy there's only 14 known copies now once again this could be a situation i mean there will be more surface like it's not you know, there's not just 14, but, but it's, if after 10 years of active wrestling markets, there's only 14 known copies, you know, it's incredibly rare. I mean, think of a, a T206 Honus Wagner. There's like 69 known copies. I mean, it's actually rarer than a Wagner, right? But I think the 82 has um, just that that wow factor, you know? And so um, I, I think what you're going to see, like, you know, I, I don't know if this will stay the case, but in 2012, when that article ran that, you know, I was interviewed from 2011, I said, I didn't think there was going to be a PSA 10. And so far there's no PSA 10. So, you know, you're looking at if a PSA 10 Hogan hits, I mean, the estimates always rising, you know, we used to easily say 25,000. Now it's, it's easy a hundred, but, I wouldn't even be surprised if it's a quarter million. Um, and I know that sounds extreme, but one of the things about graded cards and that I picked up on a long time ago is it's, it's, it's bragging rights, right? Like mine's better than yours. You know, like take the Mike Trout super refractor. Well, there's only one. There's only one person gets to say that they've got the Mike Trout super refractor, right? Well, here we are 10 years deep into people actively grading wrestling cards. There's still not a Hogan 10. So if that surfaces, you know, and it gets auctioned, somebody's going to think that, hey, like I may have the only one ever, right? And that's worth a lot, right? So, you know, like I, um, I don't have them up on the walls anymore because, yeah, I, I, I want to, I'm more cognizant of like, I don't want the sunlight getting on the cases and I just, I'm just, you know, we went in a little bit different direction in this room, but, you know, I used to have all my wrestling cards on display 
uh, I shouldn't say all, but I had six cases of 36 cards, right? And so people would come over to party and I'd be like, hey, let me show you my wrestling cards. <laughs> and, you know, first they think, oh, this is stupid. But then I'd say, well, that's the only one. And they're like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. There's only one of these that's greater than 10. You know, it, it takes on a different feel, right? Well, when they were worthless, nobody cared. But if I tell you that this Hulk Hogan, say 20,000, it's a lot more interesting, you know? And so I've always had this sort of saying that, you know, once the horse leaves the barn, it's really hard to put them back in. And what you've seen in graded cards in general is that once that price gets up, it, you know, it, it, it starts to gallop, you know, like I, I, I have the, um, I really, I'm really fortunate. My best trading card investment has been my Mike Tyson Paninis. And, you know, I paid, um, I'm in my, I have five PSA nines. I self-submitted and, you know, I mean, those are, uh, all of a sudden pretty expensive cards. Well, you know, it took, it was tough to get them to a thousand dollars. Well, once they go from a thousand to 18,000, okay. Well, well, what's 18 verse 20? What's what, you know, and, and what ends up happening is actually the higher the price goes, the more interest it gets from like deep pocketed people, because now it seems like a more real thing, you know? So wrestling cards have now moved way past the garbage bin. I mean, we just saw a flip in the past four months, the sign PSA nine Hogan went for 20,000 shocked the world. Well, then it was flipped for over 36,000. Okay. Well, you know, why is it 20? Why is it 36? Beats the hell out of me. Well, guess what? $16,000 increase in four months. You know, it's just, it is what it is. So once you get these cards, once they get four figures behind them, they can sort of take on a mind of their own. Unbelievable. I got goosebumps when you started to talk about the 82 Hogan, uh, Hogan in a PSA 10, I guess that you can call me a mark for that, but this is an unbelievable edu educational uh, conversation on just the history of the wrestling cards, your involvement. And I hope anyone listening um, goes out and definitely ch check out David's uh, social accounts. You can find him on Twitter at DPEC100 and probably the best Instagram handle of all time, 1982 Wrestling All-Stars. David, this was a blast. I we there's so much ground I still could cover with you. I'm gonna have to get you back on here uh, soon to talk more wrestling cards. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I usually end up taking up a lot of time because I think what happens is when you get people that are passionate about the stuff, it's easy to talk about, you know. And and I I, I appreciate the comments on the Instagram handle. I snagged that. See, I, I had started a website, 1982wrestlingallstars.com, and then my GoDaddy had like switched to this new website builder because I had all the pictures from the magazines of the cards, not, you know, like, so like just the, the actual picture they used. And then I had all the order forms, you know, it was a lot of stuff. And so maybe I'll reignite it, but I was like, all right, let me snag this 1982 wrestling all-stars. And you know, I think sometimes people are like, they don't know that it's the same person, but uh, I I've had a great time with social media because um, I think, that it's fun to interact. I mean, I, I meet people like you and I think it's great. Um, and I think the other thing is, is that information uh, is value, you know, uh, content is king, you know? And so one of the issues, one of the, the, the holdbacks for a lot of this stuff is nobody even knew it existed. So the more people that find out it exists, you know, the more interest there is. And so I appreciate you have me on. This is a great time. I'll, I'll certainly come back anytime if, if you want to chat further and we can delve into any topic you want. Absolutely. This was great. Thanks a lot, David. Take it easy, brother. All right, brother. <laughs> All right. I got to be honest. I legitimately marked out during that entire conversation. His knowledge about wrestling and wrestling cards was, I give it a five stars. If this is the um, David Meltzer you know, given a five-star review on a conversation, that was it. I just want to talk with David and ask him so many more questions. So much knowledge in that, that one. So many nuggets. Man, I just want to hit eBay right now and search for wrestling cards. I do. So bad. I love wrestling so much. God, I hope you learned something from that. There's just so many avenues in this damn hobby. And again, like, like wrestling or not, 
Turn left when the market is going right, everybody. Don't just follow what's happening in the mainstream market and what all the mainstream platforms are talking about. Do yourself a service and go digging. Get lost in a, a collection, in a sport, in a set that you are extremely passionate about. There is so much passion that came out when David was talking about 1982 wrestling all-star cards. He, he's got his Instagram handle. He named himself after that for crying out loud. I love that conversation. Seriously, that was one of my favorites, of course, because I love wrestling. But don't go hit David with the follow. Follow Stacking Slabs across all those social media platforms. Subscribe if you're not. What are you doing? Tell a friend, brother. If you like what you heard, man, keep coming. I'm going to keep delivering, always. Make sure you take care of yourself, take care of others around you, and I'll be back next week. Peace. Peace.